You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. One of the most comforting things to me is his divine sovereignty, knowing that he's God and knowing that he has everything under control. That's comforting to me. That's very comforting to me. He's in complete control of all things. There's nothing that is out of his control. He holds everything together in the palm of his hand, including you, child. He holds you in the palm of the hand of his hand, and scripture says nothing can snatch you out of his hand. When's the last time everything felt completely under control in your life? It's safe to say that for all of us, this is a rare feeling. In today's message, Pastor Dave wants you to know that God wants to make everything right in your life. Give up the control to Him and be changed like never before. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Esther chapter 2 as he begins his message. There's a new queen in town. we studied as King Ahasuerus held a feast, and this feast lasted for 187 days. The first feast lasted for six months, 180 days, and he was so happy about it, he decided to have another feast for seven more days. Like, how much wine can you drink? I mean, oh my gosh. So we, we know that they were in a drunken stupor most of the time. The feast was intended to obtain help for King in his eventual conquest of Greece, he was trying to set up, now this is secular history now, he was trying to set up all the armies and making a coalition, if you will, you've heard that word before, he was wanting to make a coalition of armies so that he could go and attack Greece and overthrow the Grecian government. We saw that. But the conquest fails miserably, and that's also secular history. But towards the end of the great feast, if you remember, he got a wild idea. He was so proudful and he was so hepped up and he was so out of his gourd and wine in such a drunken stupor that he decided to show off his beautiful wife, the queen, Vashti. And he calls upon her. And the scripture that we said, and we said that it doesn't say scripturally, but it's supposedly traditionally as far as the Jews are concerned, that he wanted her to come out basically naked and to show herself to all these men as a trophy, and he wanted to show her off. His pride got to him. It was basically, he wanted to show her off. It was really a bragging contest. My wife's better looking than your wife. So he called for his wife, who was, by the way, having a feast of her own for the women, because back then, the men and the women didn't be feast together. They had separate feasts. She was having her own feast for the women, and she said, no, I ain't coming, and you can't make me. She didn't want to be part of this demonstration where she would be the one on display. Whether she was some pride on her own or whether she had had enough, you know, she said, no, I'm not coming. Her refusal to come to the party and show herself really disturbed the king. And not only did it disturb the king, 
but it disturbed all his counselors as well. In fact, they came to the king and said, she, she, has, she has basically disrespected not only you, but all of us as well. In other words, she disrespected the entire kingdom by not coming at your beck and call. You have to remember the time frame here, gang. When a king called you, you came. When a king asked you to come up to him, you came. If you did not, the chances are you could lose your head. Literally, you could lose your head. But she wasn't executed. She wasn't executed. The king's counselors decided the best thing to do for her so that this women's live movement wouldn't trickle down into the township and they, all the women would get wild ideas on out about, about obeying their husband. You need to get rid of her. Send her away. And he does. He gets rid of her. She was not executed, but she lost her crown and she was queen no more. She was not only queen no more, but she was actually banned from being in the king's presence forever. And that's where we ended our study. As we come into chapter 2, it seems, according to scholars, that several years have passed. Maybe even four years have passed. And it opens with words that are very familiar if you are a Bible student after these things. After these things. Well, what things? Well, naturally, naturally, it talks about the previous chapter, chapter one, about her not coming out when the king called her to come out and show herself. But it also refers to the war against Greece. Because during this time frame, Xerxes and his coalition went against Greece. And they went against Greece and they failed miserably. They got turned back and they lost the battle to the Grecians and had to return to their home. He returns dejected. His plan to be ruler of the world, a la Leonardo DiCaprio, the king of the world, his plan failed miserably. He wasn't going to be king of the world. So he came home and he was in need of comfort. He was lonely. Tough, tough road out there getting your butt beat. Tough road out there getting a snot kicked out of you. Tough out there. So he came home looking for comfort. And guess what? There was no queen. The queen wasn't there to give him a poor, ah, oh, baby. Ah, oh, baby. He needed that. I'm sure that the servants watched him pace around in his despair as he wondered what could he do. Let's look at verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So he's, now he's remembering everything that happened. Now he is no longer drunk. He has, he's lost this battle. He's feeling pretty poorly. He needs his wife, and she's not there because he threw her away. But the law that he enacted, the law of the Medes and Persians, Persians could not be revoked. He couldn't change it. He couldn't go out to the, to the counselors and say, you know, guys, I made a mistake, and I want to bring her back. Why? Well, if he did, guess what he would have to do? He would have to kill the counselors. 
He would have to kill the counselors because he would lose face. They're the ones that said, get rid of the queen. And if he came back and said it wasn't such a good idea, then he would have to kill the counselors. So they're worried that something's going to happen, so they come up with a plan. They come up with a plan. They go, you know what we should do? We should have a beauty pageant. Yeah, that's what we should have. We should have a beauty pageant. We'll call it Miss Persia. That's what we'll do. And the winner becomes our new queen. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Look at verses 2 through 4. Then the king's servants who attended him said, it's, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custodian of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So they come up with this great plan, this wonderful, wonderful plan. They put it to the king, and the king says, man, that's a good idea. I like what you're saying there. The king pleased the king, and he did so. Gee, I guess so. I guess it really pleased the king. Come on. Doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that he was pleased with this idea. It is estimated hundreds of young women were rounded up for this beauty contest. Hundreds of women. They went to every providence and basically took the women. There was no question. They had no right to refuse. They were taken. And the idea was the most beautiful one among them that pleased the king the most they would be queen. But it is important to remember this, that if they didn't please the king, they were not sent home. They would live as a concubine to the king forever in the palace. That's major. There was no, you're a loser, go home. They would stay. It's interesting. In Proverbs 21, in Proverbs 21, in verse 1, it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So it doesn't certainly, when we're reading here, it doesn't mean that God forced the hand of the king to accept his will. Nor does it mean that God approved of this debauchery plan. He didn't approve of the king having harems either. That's not what he's saying here. God is never the author of sin. God is not the author of sin. What does it mean is that God directed the people in a situation and their decisions were made so that his will would be accomplished. God's hand was involved in this. He didn't like what was going on, but he allowed it to happen. There's a greater cause coming down the pike. A much greater cause coming down the pike. God needed to save his people. And his people were going to be placed in jeopardy of being exterminated and brought to extinction. So God had to do something to save his people, the apple of his eye. And this was part of his plan. So he allows this. It's almost like it's his permissive will, if you will. He's allowing this to happen. You know, I thought about this. That includes some of the decisions that are made today in high places of government. Think about it. Some of the things that are being decided in government, some of the things that are being decided about finance, 
We just sang and we said, God is in control of all things. There's not one thing that God isn't in control of. He's totally in control of our lives. He's totally guiding us and leading us and, and doing things. We're not robots. He's given us free will to make our, thank you, Irene. Three, I forgot what I was going to say. Irene, you're right there. I love it. He has given us free will so that we can choose different things. And then he respects our choice. He respects our choice. But it's the providential hand of God that we see. All decisions that are made today in high government and, and, and finance are controlled by God. And no decision can be made that will thwart his purpose. There's a time coming that we've been studying now for the last year and a half. There is a very, very vicious time coming, a seven-year period. Well, God's wrath will reign upon this earth like never before. God is allowing all these things to take place in setup of that. That's all going to be set up. And as you look at it, and as you study the workings of the world, and you see different things happening, talk of a one-world government, talk of a one-world currency, talk of a one-world religion, all this is end times talk. And it's all building up. That way, when it happens, the world is going to say, oh, isn't this great? But we know better because we know God's word. And we can see his hand of mercy involved in it, the way he's moving. That doesn't mean he's not slacking his promises. He still doesn't want anybody to perish. He still don't wants none to perish. He still wants all to come to the knowledge of him. You know, we've studied the attributes of God. We love to study the attributes of God, Mark and me and, and the guys who teach God's word. We love the attributes of God. We love his mercy. We love his goodness. We love his never-ending love. And all the other wonderful attributes that have slow to anger, abounding in mercy, and all those things that we read time after time in the Bible. We love those things. And they fill our hearts with joy, and they fill our heart with gladness. But I think, personally, one of the most comforting things to me is his divine sovereignty, knowing that he's God and knowing that he has everything under control. That's comforting to me. That's very comforting to me. He's in complete control of all things. There's nothing that is out of his control. He holds everything together in the palm of his hand, including you, child. He holds you in the palm of, the, in of his hand, and scripture says nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Man, that's, that should be comforting to us. That should be pleasing to us. That should make us feel such, have confidence in him. It should make us feel good in our hearts knowing that he cares so much about you. You know, we're not deists. No, deists believe that there is a God, but they believe that he's not involved in our everyday life. That's what a deist is. No, we believe God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is actively involved in each of our lives, and that Jesus died on a cross for every man, humankind, all men, all women, all children. We believe that God is actively involved in our lives by the Holy Spirit, and we have scripture after scripture after scripture to prove it. We believe that, and we respect that. There's nothing in the scriptures that indicate that the girls here consider this anything but an honor. This was a big honor to be called by the king. We've got to remember the culture that we're dealing with. This was a big honor. It was part of their culture. It was an extreme privilege and it was an extreme honor to be called by the king. And in verses 5 and 6, we see God to begin to work in the life of the intended new queen. And in these several verses, we start to meet the players 
in this fascinating drama. The first person we meet is Mordecai, verses 5 and 6. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So Mordecai comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Look at his genealogy. Look at his genealogy. Jair, Shammai, Kish. What famous biblical person was Kish's son? Got it. King Saul. King Saul was a Benjamite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he was, his father was Kish. So you see these great guys here. So Mordecai is from that family. Mordecai is part of the family genealogy of King Saul, who, will be, who was king. Interestingly, he really shouldn't have been in Shushan at all. Where should he have been? Jerusalem. He should have left, he should have left with, with Ezra. He should have left with all three groups that Ezra took away. He should have left when Nehemiah left. He was not, he should not have stayed in Chushan. He should not have stayed in the Gentile territory. He should have been yearning and wanting to be back in Jerusalem. He wanted to be there. But once again, God's mercy and God's hand of providence was there. Remember, Silas gave the decree for the Jews to return to the homeland. Only a few went. Mordecai was one of those people who grew accustomed and liked living there because it was plush. It was comfortable in Persia. He also had some sort of a political job. He lived and worked in the citadel or the palace. Who else did we study lived in the palace? Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He was the cupbearer to the king. And it even says in the first part of Nehemiah, Shushan, the citadel, the capital. That's where he lived. Now, there's nothing wrong with a political job. If it is in the will of the Lord, I can think of two Old Testament people who had political jobs and were in God's will. Give me one. Daniel. Two. Somebody said it. Joseph. Joseph. Absolutely. They were in political positions. Joseph was second in command in Egypt. Daniel had a big job in Nebuchadnezzar, his court. Mordecai at that time was not in the will of God because he was supposed to be in Jerusalem. God wanted all the Jews to come back to Jerusalem, but we see God's permissive will and his providence now in the life of Mordecai. God is going to use that decision that Mordecai stayed, said, made to stay home, and he's going to use it for his purpose. I love what J. Vernon McGee, my beloved, J. Vernon McGee describes the providence of God like this. It's how God coaches a man on second base. This man, Mordecai, is going to be brought home, although he is out of the will of God and although he is not looking to God for help. But God will continue to guide his people. And I love that. God will coach you and God will guide you and God will coach you home and bring you home to him. His will is that you would come to him. You've already come to him and he's going to continue to do that. He's going to continue to love on them. In verse 7, we meet Esther. And Mordecai had brought up Hadashah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her 
in as his own daughter. So Mordecai takes in Esther. When the Babylonian captured Jerusalem, there were three portions of Jews. The first one was nobility and upper class, Daniel. The second portion was the middle class, the most likely Mordecai was among that group. The last deportation was the common folk, the poorest of the land. And it's speculated that Esther's parents may have been slain when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem and Judah and killed thousands. Esther, her Jewish name, Hadassah, means myrtle. The Persian name Esther means star. And the thought here is we have a crepe myrtle out here and it's blooming. And the thought is that the blossom looks like a star, kind of looks like a star. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai since the death of her mom and dad. It is speculated that Esther should not have entered this beauty contest and that her cousin Mordecai encouraged her because he wanted a good place in the kingdom. And we'll see that this comes true. But once again, it all becomes the providential hand of God. Everything that's happening here is God's providence. Let's look at 8 and 9 as the beauty contest shapes up. And so it was when the king's command and decree was heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided from, for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house for the women. So here we go. He, she's entered into this contest. She's entered into this contest. She's disobeying the Lord. Why is she disobeying the Lord? What happens if she's, well, she does get chosen as queen, but what happens? It's an interracial marriage. God is against that. God is not for these type of marriages. In fact, he told the Jews to go out from them and be separate. Remember the, 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 they made the deal with Nehemiah that they weren't going to enter into interracial marriages and all that things? Well, that was happening in Jerusalem. These guys were in a Gentile city. These guys were in Shushan. Remember, I said that if Esther loses the competition, this was a bold move. If Esther loses the competition, she's locked for a lifetime in the harem of the king. She's one of his concubines. This guy, Haggai, keeper of women, takes a liking to her and provides everything she needs to make her even more comfortable. It's really interesting when you look at it because, again, we mentioned the political people like Daniel and Joseph. They, too, found favor with their captors. Joseph found favor not only with Potiphar, and then when he was thrown in prison, he found favor with the prison guard. And, and Daniel found favor with everybody he came in contact with. So, you know, it's pretty cool that you see this like that, that they found favor with their captors. We begin to see the hand of God in these awful circumstances. Once again, this should give us confidence in the Lord during your difficult circumstances. Are you going through something hard right now? Is something bothering you? Is something troubling you? Maybe you slipped, maybe you've fallen, maybe you've done some things that you think you didn't think you should do, maybe you're just having a bad day. God is with you. He will never leave nor forsake you. This should be comforting. You are a sure Thanks for listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank today. Pastor Dave is making his way through the book of Esther. It's a familiar story, but the incredible thing about the Word of God is that it's living and active. 
Every time we go through this book, I learn something new, or it stands out to me in a brand new way. Something that is standing out to me this time is the power of following God with others. Esther wouldn't have the same knowledge without Mordecai. She needed the community of her servants through the time of fasting. None of this was accomplished alone. And you are not meant to be alone either. That's why you're invited to join us at Calvary Chapel, Cape May. Life in community is a necessary and beneficial part of the Christian walk. I can think of many times in my own life I wouldn't have made it on my own. I need the community of believers around me, and you do too. So for those of you in the Cape May, New Jersey area, come join our community today. You'll find all the information you need at assurehoperadio.com. Once again, that website is assurehoperadio.com. And for those of you who can't come in person, we'd still love to be a part of your spiritual community. You can find us on Facebook and YouTube through links on the same website. Or you can send us prayer requests at info at capewatchradio.com. We'd love to pray for you. That email is info at capewatchradio.com. Thank you so much for joining us here today. We've come to the end of our time together, but we'll be back next time as Pastor Dave continues through Esther on a sure hope. You've rescued us.